And wonderful it is to come together, all of us together, to study God's Word. I can't think of anything better. We come because we want to know God, and this weekend I read something that... Uh, about God, and I wanted to share it with you. I found it in the uh, Sunday paper in the comic strip, and it was Family Circus. The oldest little boy was telling his father, some of you may have seen it, I know God's first name. And the dad looks at him and says, hmm, what is God's first name? And the little boy says, it's Andy. It's Andy. How do you know that Andy is God's first name? And he says, because mom sings about it in her favorite hymn. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. <laughs> I love that. When I saw it, I just laughed. I loved it because I thought it kind of rings true. You could see a little kid hearing that song and thinking that that could be possible. God's first name could be Andy. But I also loved it because it reminded me of the hymn in the garden. And I love that hymn because it reminds me of how much God knows me and loves me. How much God loves me and how much he wants me to know him and to love him. And in today's lesson, we are going to see the widow of Zarephath. And we're going to see God's great love for her, for this unnamed, unknown, poor Gentile widow woman. As we look closely at her, we see how very involved God is in her life, how he uh, draws her to him, how closely he is working with her, how he deepens her faith and draws him to himself. You know, this whole semester, we've been, first of all, I just want to say that I, I hope you enjoyed this widow of Zarephath as much as I did. I love this story. I had no idea. I knew the story, but I'd never studied it. I had no idea how much I was going to get out of this part of Scripture. It is exciting to be here today to talk about her. And really, every woman that we've talked about has been exciting. All semester long, we've been looking at real women in Scripture. We haven't been looking at fictional characters. We're not looking at the character of Princess Leah or uh, the you know, qualities of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, we're looking at real women, women who lived and walked on the earth. And I love that. And we're looking at their relationships because women are relation, relational, and we've seen all kinds. We've seen siblings and children and husbands. We've seen political relationships with political leaders, with strangers, all kinds of relationships. And we're looking especially at their relationship with God. Because we said at the outset that our relationship with God affects all our other relationships. And so it's crucial that we nurture that relationship with God. I like this lesson today because it's going to take a little bit different look. In this lesson, we learn how much God wants to nurture our relationship with him. You know, sometimes... uh, we feel like we're doing all the work. We're praying and we're studying and we're seeking and we feel like we're doing all the work. But the truth is, God is the initiator of the relationship. God is the one reaching out to us. God loves us and reaches out to us. Um, We're reminded of that on your verse sheet. I have 1 John 4.10 and it says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. God loves us. 
And from this lesson today, we're reminded that he uses the relationships in our lives to strengthen our faith and to deepen our relationship with him. He uses the relationships in our life. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings 17, chapter 17. And we're going to look at this great story, excuse me, of the widow of Zarephath. And before we start reading, I want to take a minute to look at uh, the background here. And on your timeline, we had passed some of those out today. I've got it up on the screen, but you may not be able to see it. If you've got yours, you might look at it. You can see that we have talked about the women in the order that they appear in Scripture until last week. And we switched the Shudamite woman with the widow of Zarephath. Some of you might have caught on to that. The, uh, the Shudamite woman story takes place about two decades after the widow of Zarephath. But they're pretty close in the same period of history. As we look at these women, we've looked at God's story. We've looked at his story, which is history. And we've seen how it's unfolded in the Old Testament. Two weeks ago, Lynn Kitchens talked to us about Abigail and King David, and she talked about how the people, the Israelite people, had called out for a king. Before that, they had been ruled by judges with God over them. It was a theocracy. But they looked around, they saw the neighboring countries had kings, and they called out and said, God, we want a king. So God had Samuel anoint first King Saul. And then he had Samuel anoint David to be king of Israel. And David would be the great king of Israel. And she showed us the verses where it said that from his line would come someday a king that would reign forever on the throne. He would be the everlasting eternal king. And we know that that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus was from the line of David. David was from the tribe of Judah. And Jerusalem is the city, the important city in Judah. It was in Jerusalem where David reigned. That's where his palace was. And when he died and his son Solomon uh, reigned as king over Israel, he built a beautiful temple to the Lord God. But after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, and there's some trouble in Israel. There's some dissension, and so Jeroboam leads a revolt, and the kingdom splits in two. And we now have the northern kingdom made up of ten tribes, Jeroboam becomes the king, and they keep the name Israel. It's the northern kingdom. And we have the southern kingdom, where Rehoboam will continue to reign, and he stays in Jerusalem, and that southern kingdom is known as Judah. Now, what you want to remember is that there were no good kings in Israel, in the northern kingdom. There were no kings that followed after God. There were some good kings in Judah, uh, not many, but a few. And a couple years ago, we studied the good kings of Judah in Women in the Word. But there are no good kings in Israel. They all do evil in the sight of the Lord. Our story today takes place in the northern kingdom in Israel. And Ahab is the king of Israel at that time. And if you read about Ahab, you saw that he was the most evil of all of the northern kings. That he was uh, really bad to the bone, as they say. So let's look in First Kings 16 and just see uh, what the word tells us about King Ahab. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. 
They made uh, kind of the place of um, that was equal to Jerusalem, they made that Samaria. That's where the northern kingdom would rule, and they actually tried to set up, Jeroboam tried to set up an altar to God in Samaria. That's where they would rule. And so this is where Ahab is. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So we see that Ahab uh, is setting up uh, an altar. He's setting up places to worship Baal, who is really a false god of the people from the neighboring countries. He's totally turned away from God. He is about as far away from God as he can get. He's married Jezebel, who is a foreigner, who comes from Baal-worshipping country, and she has influenced Ahab in this. And so together, they are a very, very bad pair. So God raises up the great prophet Elijah. He raises him up to go and to speak his words to Ahab. Now, the period of kings, which lasts about um, four year, <clears throat> excuse me, 400 years, there are many prophets during this time. The prophets are God's mouthpiece. They foretell the future, but oftentimes their primary job is to remind the king and the people in general that they should turn back to God, remember God, obey and trust God. The prophets remind the people of the judgment that will come if they continue in their disobedience. And they also give wonderful words of encouragement and exhortation to those who trust in God. So Elijah, the great prophet of God, comes to Ahab, and we read what he says in chapter 17, Let's start in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, that's kind of in direct um, contrast to Ahab, who is now serving Baal, the ungod, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, in Deuteronomy 11:14, we see that rain is going to be uh, a symbol of blessing from God. It signifies blessing from God. In other places in Scripture, we see that as well. So this is God withholding his blessing from uh, evil king Ahab. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now God is telling Elijah to go hide. He's trying to protect him because Jezebel and Ahab are going to be really, really upset when things begin to dry out. And so he has gone east of the Jordan. Now, I didn't put a map on there, but you remember that at the top we have the Sea of Galilee with the curvy Jordan River with the Dead Sea down at the bottom. And he's just east of the Jordan in this valley of Kareth. And there he stays for some time. 
Verse 7 tells us that sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, we know that the drought lasts three and a half years, and it kind of ends, if you want to read about it, it's amazing, in chapter 18, with the big standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and you all may remember that great story. So the drought lasts three and a half years, and we don't know how long Elijah was at this brook, but it could have been a year and a half, maybe two years into this drought. He is there at this brook, and then it dries up. And then in verse 8, we read, The word of the Lord came to him, and he says, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon, and stay there. I have commanded a widow in the place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. He goes to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath is 90 miles north and to the west on the Mediterranean Sea. And it's in the country of Phoenicia. It's not in Israel. And it's near the territory. It's in the territory of Sidon. And does that ring a bell? That is Jezebel's hometown. So we are in the thick of Baal-worshipping territory in a foreign country, not Israel. And this is where God directs Elijah to go. And he tells him to go to a widow, that he would provide for him through a widow. Now, what do we know about widows? We know that they're usually poor. And we know that they usually need someone to provide for them, not the other way around. And we also know from the scriptures that we read this week that God has a heart for the widow. So just as an aside, do you know any widows? And if you do, then pray and ask God, how would you have me minister to the widows that I know in my life? What would you have me to do for the widows that I know? Enough of the aside, back to our story. God is sending Elijah to find provision from this widow. Does that seem strange to you? Did anybody seem that seems strange? You know, maybe not, because he's just been fed by ravens, and so maybe this is a, you know, a step up. We see here, and this whole story is really, this whole chapter, these chapters in 1 Kings, they are about Elijah and Elijah's faith growing. This is what how God is teaching Elijah. And along the way, God will take the time that this time with Elijah, he will take that and also use it to take the small faith of this nameless widow woman and to grow her faith and deepen it into something great. So let's read verse 10 and see what happens. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So we see Elijah finding this widow, gathering sticks. And can you picture this? A poor Gentile woman. Her husband has died, and she's out gathering sticks because the ground is bone dry. She can't grow a thing. It's probably a year and a half, like we said, or two years into the drought. She cannot grow anything. All her food is gone. All she has left is a little flour in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug. 
So she's going to get some sticks, build a fire, and make this last cake of bread for herself and her son before they die. But she does go to get Elijah water. I think that this tells us that she is a very hospitable and kind and generous woman because you know she probably doesn't have a lot of water either. They're in a drought. But she goes to him to get him water. And then he asks for bread. And that's when she turns to him and tells him her bad news. I don't have any food. I just have this little bit of flour and this little bit of oil. But before she says this, she addresses Elijah by saying, as surely as your God lives. That phrase tells us she probably recognized Elijah as an Israelite by what he was wearing. And it tells us that she believes that this God of Israel is a living God, and she believes in that. This poor Gentile woman has somehow heard of this God of Israel, Yahweh, the living and true God, and she believes that. She doesn't even know enough about God to call him her God. Now begins her journey of faith with this simple testimony about the living God. It begins with believing that the living God wants a personal relationship with her. Thank you. And that's where our journey of faith begins as well. We're all on a journey of faith. Our journeys um, are all different, but they all begin when we realize that the living God, the creator God of the universe, our heavenly father, wants a personal relationship with you and with me. And that he's made that relationship possible by the work of Christ on the cross. And our journeys begin, and they're all different. There may be some similarities, but basically we all have a different journey of faith. But two things are true. One, our journey is going to continue until we see Jesus on the other side. It's not going to stop on this um, earth. Our journey will continue until we see God in heaven. The second thing is our journey is orchestrated By God himself, he sets us on this journey. So let's continue and watch how the widow's faith grows. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Her journey of faith continues as she believes God's words, and she does what Elijah asks of her. A definition of faith that I really like is taking God at his word. It's believing God is the one, is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. This is what the widow believed. She took God at his word, and she believed that God will keep flour and oil in the jar and the jug until the rains come. But this is a huge step of faith on the widow's journey. This is taking the very last scrap of food that she has and giving it away. Now, some of us might sacrifice the last food for ourselves, but to take the last bit of food 
from our child and give it away. That is huge. Imagine that if you can. Very few of us will be asked to step out in faith in this way, but God will ask us to trust him, to believe his word and step out on our journey of faith to do something that's hard or scary or maybe painful. And why does God ask us? Because this is the way our faith is strengthened. This is the way that we can come to know God in a more personal and real way. A quote by Jean Carson says that faith cannot be separated from the object in which it believes. Without the reliability of the object, faith can become an unbridled emotion or a presumption without any promise to sustain it. Faith cannot be disconnected from the word of God. I want to say that again. Faith cannot be disconnected from the word of God. In our journey of faith, we must trust the word of God. Where is your journey of faith leading you today? In what way is God asking you to trust him? Maybe it's in finances. We've heard about that. Maybe it's in relationships with a child or a spouse or parents or a coworker or a friend. Maybe it's a change. Maybe you've experienced a change or there's a change coming up in your life and God is asking you to trust him with that. Maybe it's your health. I don't know how God is asking you to trust him, but I know this, that God can be trusted with whatever it is. Psalm 86.2 says, Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. God can be trusted. 2 Timothy 1.10 tells us uh, this in a different way. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. That kind of reminds you of another great hymn. God can be trusted. Let's read on and see what happens. Verse 15. So she went away and she did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So the widow gives Elijah this last cake of bread that she fixes, and she goes back, and there is more flour in the jar and more oil in the jug. Now, I don't think the jar was filled to running over with flour. I think there was just enough flour and just enough oil to make another cake of bread for herself and her son. And then that night, the same thing. She looked in, and there was just enough flour and just enough oil to make another meal of bread for Elijah and herself and her son. And then she woke up in the morning, and once again, just enough flour, just enough oil to make a meal for breakfast. And it continued on that night and the next day and the next day and the next day. And she, every day, had to trust God to provide for them, to keep his promise of oil and flour. And she sees God's miraculous provision every day. God's miraculous provision in the oil in the flower. In our journey of faith, we can stand on the promises of God as well. 
When I think of standing on the promises of God, I'm reminded of George Mueller. I hope uh, you all have read his autobiography. If not, it's a great book of faith. He was a German Christian. He lived in the beginning of the 1800s, and he had a great faith. Early on, he came to England to preach to a congregation, small congregation, and he decided that he was going to only uh, ask God for provision. He wasn't going to ask the people. So he began to pray. And God would lead him to open a, um, he married, and he and his wife would pray together for provision. And God led him to um, start a school and then an orphanage for some boys in Bristol, England. And every day, he still did not ask for provision. He would only pray and ask God to provide for him. And I want to read just uh, one excerpt. Uh, These are excerpts from his diary, and it's day after day, the same thing. They don't have anything, they pray, and God sends it to them in a miraculous way. This is December 16th. Nothing has come in. At 6 o'clock this evening, our need was very great in the orphan houses and the day schools. By this time, they have several orphan houses. He ministered to more than a 1,000 boys before his death. I prayed with two of the laborers. We needed some money to come in before 8 o'clock tomorrow morning so that we could buy milk for breakfast. Our hearts were at peace, and we felt assured that our Father would supply our need. We had scarcely risen from our knees when I received a letter containing a sovereign for the orphans. About five minutes later, a brother promised to give me 50 pounds next week. A quarter of an hour after that, a brother gave me another sovereign, which a sister in the Lord had left for the orphans. How sweet and precious it is to see the willingness of the Lord to answer the prayers of his needy children. And he says about God's uh, provision in this way, because a lot of people said, Aren't you, don't you get tired of this year after year? And he says, God's timing is always perfect. Why did this money not come a few days sooner or later? Because the Lord wanted to help us buy it, and he influenced the donor just then, not sooner or later, to send it. Surely all who know the Lord must see his hand in this work. George Mueller stood on God's promise. Philippians 4.19 says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He felt that this would not only increase his faith, but also others would come to understand that God answers prayer. We too can stand on the promises of God. Look for them in scripture and see how God is uh, keeping them in your life. This week I talked to um, a couple of widows and I asked them, how has God provided for you in an amazing way um, after your husband died? And the first one told me, she was very young when her husband died, and she said right off the bat it was protection, that she was afraid that her car would break down and that without her husband there would be nobody to come and bail her out and to help her with this car. So she prayed to God about that. And sure enough, her car breaks down. And so she said to me the very minute she could get to a phone and call someone, that person right then could come and help her and help the situation with the car. And then it happened again. The car broke down. And once again, the first person she called was able to come right then and to help her. And she told me instance after instance. And then she told me of how she was taking her daughter to camp at Pine Cove. So she's on the freeway in East Texas, and she has other children in the car. And suddenly they hear this noise. Something is going on with the car. And right there is an exit. So she exits the freeway. 
and then two men suddenly appear. They look and see that it's her muffler dragging. And so they unscrew the muffler, put it in her trunk, and she's good to go and get her daughter off to Pine Cove. My friend told me that. She always thought those two men were angels. I also called my mom this week. My father died when I was 25, and my mom was not quite 47. Um, I, I didn't realize at the time just how young that was, but uh, now, uh, in my 50s, I think, and I even told her this week that, Mom, you, you were young when Daddy died. I don't think I realized it. And so I asked her to remind me of some of the ways God had provided for her during that time. And she quickly said it was um, answering prayer for and giving me direction for all the decisions I had to make. I still had a brother and sister that were at home and in high school, and there were all kinds of things um, for my mom to settle and to do after my dad died, and it was very overwhelming um, to her many times. And she told me many stories, some that I remembered and some that I had never heard, of how God had directed her during this hard time. And she told me this one story of how she had made a decision, and she was unsure if this was what she should do. And it was really um, trying to her. And so she got before God, and she was praying and just crying before the Lord, saying, is this what I should do? And she said she felt like suddenly a warm blanket had been put around her, and this peace filled, filled her up, and her tears were stopped as she felt like God was confirming you are right in this decision. I also talked to a gal. She's not a widow, but her husband left her, and she has had to provide for her children. And I said, what? Uh, when you think of God providing in amazing ways, what do you think? And she immediately said, finances. There have been times when I didn't know how I was going to um, pay for something, and God always miraculously provided us with the money that we needed. And then she told me, she told me many stories, but this one story I want to share. It was before... Um, one Christmas, and someone had given her, she didn't have much money to buy presents, and someone had given her what she called was a large sum of money. And she said, spend this however you wish. And so she thought, I will buy the children each a present, and then with the money that's left over, I'm going to buy this thing that she needed for her home. So she did that. She bought the presents for the children, and then she had this money left over, but somehow she just felt like she shouldn't use that for her home. And so she began to pray, God, how do you want me to use this money that's left over? And so she um, felt like she was to give it to this mission endeavor that she knew of. So she gave, wrote the check, sent the money to the mission cause, and the very next day at work, she gets to work, and on her desk is a card with money in it. It's anonymous. The next day she comes to work, another card with more money, anonymous. Three days in a row, she received money anonymously, and it was the same amount that she had given to this mission endeavor. And she felt like God was saying, use that to buy what you need for your home. Great stories. Great stories. Look in your life for those ways that God has provided for you. Let's continue and look at um, verses 17 and 18. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? 
Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now an even greater tragedy has uh, come to the home of the widow of Zarephath. Her only son dies. And her journey of faith hits a really difficult place. And we see her faith in crisis. Her faith is shaken with her son's death. She has trusted God to provide food for her day in and day out for some time now. But with the death of her son, we see her faith waver. And she asks Elijah, what do you have against me? What have I done? Are you punishing me for my sin? You know, often this is our response in times of great crisis or great tragedy. We don't really understand the ways of God very well. And so we begin to think God must be an angry God. He must be unfair. He must be unkind and harsh. And we begin to assign to God all kinds of attributes that are not true of God. And this kind of thinking can be very dangerous, not because it upsets God, but because it weakens our faith. We become confused about who God really is. The truth is God is reaching out to us. God is loving us and is faithful. So when we come through this crisis of faith, and for some of us it will take uh, many years, our faith is stronger and we understand and know God more personally. In our journey of faith, we too can be overwhelmed and experience a crisis of faith. But remember, God is always with us. Deuteronomy 31.6 tells us he will never leave you nor forsake you. And then in Psalm 73, we read this. And I love Psalm 73 because the psalmist was in a crisis of faith when he wrote this. But when he turns back to God, he realizes who God is. And he says in verse 23, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You know, we think we're holding on to God so tight and that we might let go. And the truth is, God is holding on to us and he's not letting us go. If you are experiencing a crisis of faith right now, call out to God. Call out and ask for mercy. Psalm uh, 86, 5 and 6 tells us this. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. If you know someone that is having a crisis of faith, reach out to them in love. Pray for them. We don't need to chastise them or to try to fix them. We just need to listen to them and to be patient. And if given the opportunity, remind them of who God is, that God is loving, that he is sovereign, that he is good, and that he is in control. We don't understand the ways of God, but we know that he can bring good out of bad. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells that. Solomon says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Let's read verses 19. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. 
Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. There's so much that we can learn from these few verses. We see that Elijah's faith in God is continuing to grow and to develop through this relationship with the widow. Elijah's journey of faith is continuing through this relationship just as God is using Elijah in her life. And we learned some things about prayer from Elijah's example. And I would have loved to have been in your small groups to hear. I learned some things myself in the leaders' um, small group meeting. But three things jumped out to me. First, Elijah is honest. He honestly calls out to God that he doesn't understand all this. He calls out in compassion for the widow. Secondly, he calls out to God because he believes that God will answer. Psalm 86, 7 says, In the day of my trouble I will call to you, for you will answer me. Elijah believes that, that God will answer him. And then the third thing I learn about prayer is that Elijah is persistent. Three times he stretches himself out on the boy. Three times he says, Oh Lord my God, let this boy's, let this boy's life return to him. Oh Lord my God, Let this boy's life return to him. Three times he calls out to God. Elijah seems desperate for the boy to come back to life. And as I looked at that, I wondered about that over the last couple of weeks. Why was Elijah so desperate for this boy to come back to life? One, I think he had compassion on the widow. But I also think that he cared about the faith of this widow. I think he wanted her faith to be strengthened and deepened as she walked along her journey of faith. I heard a story of some young men who were desperate for their friend's faith. These young men went to college together, and they were very good friends. And as they graduated, they went on their separate ways to to live in different towns and even some different states. But they kept in touch with one another. And one day they heard that their one friend was having a crisis of faith. He was wanting to divorce his wife, and he had turned away from God and really felt like his faith was not very important to him anymore. So his friends began to talk to one another, and they decided to come together in one town and to pray for their friend. And they did that, and then they decided that they would get in a car and that they would just drive to see their friend, who was two states away. So they left, and they drove through the night, stopping every hour to pray for their friend and his faith. And when they got there, they found their friend, and he was very excited to see him. He was very touched that they had made this journey, and he listened to them into the night. But as they got up the next morning to leave, his heart was not repentant, and he it had not softened towards God. I don't know where that young man is today, but I know that his friends are still praying for him, and I know that God is still holding on to him. And I, when I heard the story of this young man, um, it caused me to, to cry for him, and then also I thought about how often am I that desperate for my friend's faith when it's in crisis. How often do I pray that earnestly, go to those measures to pray for a friend whose faith is in crisis? Elijah was desperate for the widow's faith. 
So the widow's journey of faith brings her to this point where she sees God's power and goodness in the miracle of bringing life from death, bringing her son back to life. In our journey, we too see God bring life from death. Vicki talked last week about God being in the miracle business. And we know that as believers that we have experienced this death to life in our journey of faith. And we need to acknowledge and to recognize our personal restoration from death to life. Before our salvation, we were dead in our sins. But believing in Jesus changes that status to eternal life in Christ. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Look, your son is alive, Elijah says to the widow. And she is the first person in the Bible to hear those words because this is the first instance that we read of where someone that is dead comes back to life. Now, we studied the Shunammite woman's son last week, but we said that story is not going to take place for about another 20 years. So this is the first time that it happens. And we see her response in verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. The word of the Lord is the truth. She truly understands the power and the goodness and who God is, the power of the one true and living God. And this is a statement of praise. Through her relationship with Elijah, God has revealed himself to the widow of Zarephath. Now, she has gone through some great trials to get to this place, to have her faith strengthened. And we read in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, why this is important, why these trials are important in our life. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Our faith is tried and tested so that it becomes stronger, so that it becomes more and more real, and our relationship with God is deepened. I love it that the God revealed himself to the widow of Zarephath through her faith. Edith Dean says that Elijah helped her to understand that God is known only as he reveals himself and that faith is the key to his revelation. You know, for so uh, many years, I thought that I wanted to know God better so that my faith would be stronger. But the truth is, it's our faith that is the key to knowing God. So ladies, where are you today in your journey of faith? Wherever you are, look for God's sovereign power and goodness in your life. And remember that God is reaching out to you and that God uses the relationships in your life to strengthen your faith and to deepen your relationship with him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are an awesome, mighty, true, and living God. And we worship you and we praise you. Father, you love each of us so much we can't even fathom. And from this story of the widow of Zarephath, how you cared for her, we learn a little bit more about how much you love each of us. 
Father, I pray that you would take us on our journey, that you would take us through the trials and the hard times, and that we might trust you more and more, that our faith might become stronger, that our relationship with you might deepen and become more real. Lord, that is our desire. I pray, Father, that you would bless each woman in this room. Father, that your love and your goodness would be poured down upon them. And I ask this in the precious name of Jesus.